Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you guys like to wait in line? One of the things that we got to do, this two, we went to Disneyland twice, and because Zachary is a special needs child, we got some perks. So the first time we went in 2011 was when Star Tours opened, and there was a five-hour wait. We got to go right up because he was in his wheelchair and stuff. So it, it was, we didn't have to wait in all those lines, but I do not like to wait in line. Um, think about amusement parks. You wait in line for like, what, two hours for a 30-second ride, and it's like, okay, it's over. So I went um, on the Internet to look at the restaurants that have the longest line of people waiting to eat their food, okay? So let me just, n- number one on the list was Oklahoma Joe's in Kansas City. It's a famous barbecue joint. It operates out of a gas station, and it serves some, I guess, some killer ribs. Um, it's almost on the top of everybody's list of best barbecue places in the country. If you've, if you've ever been to Kansas City, they're known for, for barbecue. That's where my parents grew up. And So the line starts at 10 a.m., and sometimes goes till closing. Sometimes you have to wait like six hours to get in. So six hours for some ribs. That must be some pretty good ribs if you're going to wait that long. Okay, number two was the Muscle and Burger Bar in Louisville, Kentucky. I've never eaten there, even though I've been to Louisville many times. Um, It's a weird combination of hamburgers with mussels. Uh, Mussels, like, you know. No, mussels are like clammy type thing, yeah. You kind of pop them open and slurp them, right? So that's a weird combination. Um, So their wait is up to two hours there. Okay, number three was Hot Dugs. Not Hot Dogs, but Hot Dugs. A famous hot dog restaurant featuring the Elvis. It's a Polish sausage and the Bo Derek. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so I could go on and on on this list, but it's, it's amazing how long people will wait in line for something they think is valuable. Uh, you wait in line at a restaurant, you wait in line at an amusement park. Um, but what happens if you wait for a long time in your life for something to happen and it just never happens? You wait, you wait, you wait. God may have shown you a promise or God may have uh, given you something in His Word and it's just you're waiting and you're waiting. And So how do you handle the adversity and the patience while you wait? So we're going to see the issue of waiting as we fast forward into 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, last week we were in 1 Samuel, and like I've said every week, if we're going to get through the life of David, we can't do every single chapter. We've got to pick and choose. And so we're taking a leap. And so um, let me just kind of give you a rundown of what happens in the latter chapters of 1 Samuel Basically, David was on the run from Saul, as you remember last week. Um, he was betrayed by the city of Calah. He was betrayed by the Ziphites. Um, basically, Saul eventually dies in battle, and he commits suicide. He falls on his sword. Um, he's wounded. He wants his armor bearer to go ahead and kill him. His armor bearer refuses, and so Saul takes his own life and falls on his sword and dies in battle. So the king is dead. And when David hears this, 
Um, he mourns. He mourns, which is amazing that David would mourn the death of Saul because you think of all the ways that Saul treated David, David could have gloated and said, yeah, he got what was coming to him. But David truly mourns. And so who's the rightful king? David. Who's dead? Saul. And you remember Jonathan already gave his armor and everything to Saul. Jonathan does not want the kingship even though he's first in line. He, he already abdicated that to David, we saw a few weeks ago, but Abner, Abner was Saul's general, Saul's commander. Um, he basically makes Saul's other son, Ishbosheth. Now, that's that's a name you probably don't want to name your kids, Ishbosheth. So Abner basically says, "Okay, I'm going to have Ishbosheth be king over Israel." Okay, um, but the tribe of Judah ends up following David. So you almost have like two kings of Israel. And so there is, after Saul's death, a kind of a long battle between Saul's followers, Ishbosheth and Abner and those guys, and David's followers. Um, eventually, I'm giving you like the, the, the Reader's Digest version of this, Abner gets murdered, and so some of David's men sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's taking a nap and stab him to death as well. Okay, this sounds like something on Game of Thrones or something. This is like something that's, you know, a lot, a lot of um, intrigue and murder. Um, so anyway, it's been a long, hard-fought battle between the house of Saul and the house of David. And so David's still not actually recognized as king yet. So it's been a, David's been on the run, he's hidden in caves, he's had Saul try to spear him to death, and even after Saul's death, he still isn't the king. There's this uh, Ishbosheth that, is, that, that assumes the throne, there's all this fighting, and finally, we get to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, and if you look at your uninspired heading, what does your uninspired heading say above chapter 5? David anointed king of Israel. Okay, so this is um, that moment that David has been waiting for a long time. So in verses 1 through 5, this is kind of the first thing we're going to look at. Now, this chapter is not necessarily chronological. It's, it's a snapshot of David's entire kingship over Israel. It's kind of like... The author of Samuel took a snapshot and said, I'm going, to give you the, I'm going to give you like in a snapshot an overview of David's reign. Um, and so it's more theological, it's more thematic. Um, and so the one issue you see is this epic moment when David is finally anointed and recognized as king. So here's the main point of this entire chapter, okay? Here's the point. God is faithful to his promises, even when it seems like you must endure trials and wait long periods of time. When you go through trials, when you have to wait through long periods of time, God is faithful to his promises. Now, we don't always feel that. We don't always sense that. We don't always see that. But it doesn't mean that God's not faithful. God is faithful to his promises. And this is finally the moment where God kind of comes through for David at that moment when he is um, anointed. So this is, a fact, this is basically a chapter about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. 
And we see three big issues or three big sections uh, that emerge from this text. And so um, we're going to look at each three of these, okay? So the first one is in verses 1 through 5. And so the first one we see here, the first scene or the first issue, number one, the Lord fulfills his promise to David through many trials. So let's read verses 1 through 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron, before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Okay, so this is the anointing at Hebron. So this, we're going to kind of come later on to where he actually takes Jerusalem. Um, but this is kind of a snapshot of the total reign of David for 40 years. So this is the high moment in David's life because what happens, all the tribes, the entire nation comes and officially recognizes David as the official king over Israel. And notice what they say about him. What have we said from the very beginning? What was David doing when Samuel came to anoint him and Jesse parades all of his sons in front of there, what was David out doing? <clears throat> he was shepherding. David was a shepherd before he was a king, which is very, very important. He learned to take care of sheep before he learned to take care of a nation. So look at verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. You'll be a shepherd. And that word prince can also mean king or leader. You will be the shepherd king, the shepherd leader. He's to shepherd the people. He's to lead the people as a shepherd leads the sheep. He's to be a man after God's own heart. Now, this moment in David's life up to this point has been a long, difficult, and arduous journey. What has David had to endure from the very beginning? What's the very first thing David faced? Goliath. That's a big hurdle. And remember with Goliath, remember he had, to, he had to deal with his brothers. He said, you're a little pipsqueak, go back home. And then he had to deal with Saul. So he had, he had three people he had to deal with, his brother, Saul, and Goliath. And then Saul chucked spears at him twice. David was betrayed. Remember, he was betrayed by the city of Calah. His supposed friends, he was betrayed by the Ziphites tw twice. 
We had just told you he, he had Abner, Saul's commander that was coming after him, Ishbosheth. He had all of these things facing him. So there was no easy path to the throne. It was a long, hard, painful journey for David to finally get there. Because he was a young boy, a young man. We don't really know how old he was, but probably a boy when Samuel anointed him. And now he has to wait years. But what's the point? In the midst of all that, what promise did God make to David when, he, when Samuel anointed him as a, as a boy? You will be king. Now, did it happen automatically? It happened through a painful process. But God came through on his promise. So here's the point. God makes us promises in his word, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be painful to get there. We may have to go through trials. We may have to wait patiently. We may have to go through struggles for us to finally receive that promise that God has for us. It doesn't mean that God's not faithful. It just means that through that, God is either preparing us, God is shaping us, God is molding us. But that's, what's the, that's the first thing we see here is that God's faithful to David. God made a promise to David. Now it's finally coming true. He's being anointed the king of Israel. Now, the second one may be not as much, may not jump right out on the page to you, but I'm going to take us back into Israel's history because it's very, very important. So, number two, the Lord fulfills his promise to Abraham after hundreds of years. Now you're like, okay, where does Abraham show up in this? Who was Abraham? Wasn't he the first Israelite? <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's fourth son, Judah. David came from the lineage of Abraham. Okay, so let's read verses 6 through 10, and I'm going to try to explain this to you. All right, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Okay. What does David conquer? He captures the city of what? Jerusalem. This is the very first time that David captures the city of Jerusalem. Who were the inhabitants of Jerusalem? The Jebusites. Okay. Who were the Jebusites? Well, God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis that the people of Israel would inhabit the land of the Jebusites. This was first made to Abraham. So back in Genesis 15, 18-21, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring... 
I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the promised land. What does God say to, to Abraham? I'm making a covenant with you. You will have the promised land. I'm giving it to you. This is my promise to you. Now, who's listed last on that list? The Jebusites are listed last. Now you think, why are they listed last? Is that just because they're last? No, there's a theological reason why they're listed last. In every list of the Canaanite pagan nations that that you show up in the Bible, the Jebusites are always listed last. You may think, why? It's a symbolic way of saying that they would be the last or the final enemy Israel had to defeat before the land was finally theirs. So God made a promise to Abraham, you will capture the Jebusites. In Abraham's lifetime, did Abraham ever even enter the promised land? No. Did Isaac ever enter the promised land? No. Did Jacob? No. Did even Moses? Okay, but God made a promise to Moses. Okay, so let's fast forward 400 years later. God makes a promise to Moses about the Jebusites, the same promise he made to Abraham about the promised land. This is in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, notice they're listed last, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now, this is kind of a difficult thing, and we talked about this when we first started. What did God tell the Israelites they had to do when they went into the promised land? God's pretty explicit. What did he say? They were to totally wipe these nations out and occupy the promised land. Now, who actually gets to go into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua crosses the Jordan River. Joshua is the commander of the army. Joshua, the whole book of Joshua, pretty much the latter part, is them conquering these ites and then dividing up the tribes. And for the most part, under Joshua's leadership... When they crossed the Jordan River, the Israelites had victory over many of the nations, but there was one pesky nation they could never defeat. Go back and read the book of Joshua. They could never defeat the Jebusites. Now, who, what city do the Jebusites hold? Jerusalem. Okay, so in Joshua 15, 63, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So hundreds of years earlier, God made a promise to Abraham, you're going to wipe out the Jebusites and get the land. He made a promise to Moses, you're going to wipe out the nations. He told Joshua, go in and wipe out the nations. For the most part, Joshua was somewhat successful. What was the one nation they could never wipe out? The Jebusites. Okay, now let's get to the time of the Judges. Judges. 
Okay, Joshua, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Okay, this is even before David's time. Judges. Okay, how did the Jebusites, how did the Israelites do against the Jebusites in the time of the Judges? Okay, so Judges 1.21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, fast forward to this chapter we're in right now. The promise that was made hundreds of years earlier to Abraham, promise made to Moses, Joshua couldn't wipe him out, the judges couldn't wipe him out. Now who finally is the one to actually take the Jebusites and finally, after all these years, they finally actually take the promised land because what do they capture? Jerusalem. It's taken him that long to get Jerusalem. So in God's perfect timing, the shepherd king, David, who has a heart for God, fulfills this ancient promise to Abraham almost after 800 years and unites Israel as one nation. How long did Israel have to wait before they could get Jerusalem? 800 years. Abraham never got to get in. Isaac never got to get in. Jacob never got to get in. Moses never got to get in. Joshua defeated most of them. But the Jebusites were that pesky nation that they could never drive out. And finally, what does it say here? Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come here, but the blind and lame will ward you off. So here's what happens. Basically, they climb up this watershed, the water shaft, and they take the city by surprise. And it's called what? The city of David, Jerusalem. Now, what do we know about Jerusalem? It's the most important city in the Bible, right? Maybe the most important city in the world, Jerusalem. But it's taken them this long to actually occupy it for themselves. And so when you think about how long, think about how long David had to wait to be king. How long did the Israelites have to wait to get Jerusalem? Did you realize they had to wait 800 years? It's a long time to wait. Generation after generation. They probably thought maybe God was slow on his promise. Because think about it. When did God make the promise to Abraham? 800 years later. Okay, year 600. God, you're going to come through? Year 700. God, you're going to come through? Year 800. God, you're going to come through? Finally. Now, no, none of us here have had to wait 800 years for something, but could it appear like we had to wait 800 years for something? I've waited forever, like 30 minutes, for God to come through on his promise. Well, Israel ate, waited 800 years. So. But notice verse 10. What did I say over and over again that you're going to see described of David? What does verse 10 say? David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with the Lord was with him. Over, there's two things. You, when you read First and Second Samuel, there's two phrases you, you see over and over again described of David. Number one, the Lord was with him. And number two, David inquired of the Lord. Over and over again. Those go together. David was a praying man after God's own heart. He inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. And by the way, we'll get there in a few weeks. 
He inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He prayed. He prayed. The Lord was with him. When he gets to David and Bathsheba, you no longer see that language, David inquired of the Lord. I'm just kind of giving you a preview there. But notice what God has called. He's called the God of hosts. Lord of hosts would be Yahweh Sabbat. God of hosts, Elohim Sabaat. God of hosts. Now, what, does your translation say anything different? Hosts? Does it say God of hosts? Okay, that helped. So what's, what, what does it mean that God's the God of hosts? Does that mean when you walk into a restaurant, God says, okay, I'm going to take you to your table. I'm, the, or, you know, I'm your host. God of hosts. What is it? Who are the hosts? Okay. It means that God is the commander of an army of angels. The heavenly host, God of hosts means God is the commander of angels. He has angel warriors that go do his bidding. The Lord is with David, the God of hosts. Psalm 103, 20-21, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. So the host are the angels. So this is basically saying God is powerful. God is the commander of angels. God. So what have we seen so far? God is faithful to his promise to David after many years of adversity to finally give him the kingship. God is faithful to Abraham and by extension all of Israel. They had to wait 800 years before they get Jerusalem and finally drive out the Jebusites. Okay, so what's the third thing? Remember this whole chapter is about God's faithfulness. So here is number three. The Lord defends his kingdom against idolatry as the mighty warrior. Let's see what happens next. Because are the pagan nations going to like the fact that Jerusalem's been captured? It's a strategic city geographically. Mount Zion. Let's pick up in verse, well, let's pick up in verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. And then we'll just skip over the fact that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. We'll, we'll deal with that later because I don't, I don't want to just deal with that right now. But... When it says David built a house, that's not talking about the temple. That's like his personal house where he lived. Okay. Now, let's go down to verse 17 and see kind of what happens here. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord. Okay, there it is. David inquired of the Lord. He prayed. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken 
through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perizim. If you look down there, it means the Lord of bursting through. That's what Baal Perizim means. If you have a footnote in your Bible, the Lord of breaking through. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to the rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So the Philistines are not going to go down without a fight because David is now the king. They've heard of him. He's a mightier warrior than Saul ever was, and they've captured Jerusalem. So they come out against David, and David's a man of prayer. He inquires of the Lord, and he says, Lord, should I go against the Philistines? Will you give me into their hands? And the Lord says, I'm certainly with you. Go out, and he won. Now, I want you to notice, what did he do there in verse 21? Is that just a little incidental bit of information? The Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Why is that important? Idolatry is the huge sin in the Old Testament and even one we deal with, but Israel was always faced with idolatry. They were always drawn away to idols. What would happen if David had left the idols in the city? Israel would be tempted to worship those idols. So David, as the man of God, says, we've got to get all of these idols out of here exact opposite of what the Israelites said to Aaron make us a golden calf and Aaron fashioned one David's like no we're not going to have any we're not going to have any remnant of idolatry here in in God's city we're getting it out we're this is God's city he's given us the city we've waited 800 years for the city we're not going to start out by having idols in the city and then a second time the Philistines come against David and this time it's kind of a uh, surprise attack kind of a rear surprise. And when they hear the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, rouse yourself, for the Lord will go before you. So David defeats the Philistines twice. But there's the description. There are two key descriptions of God in this passage that are very, very interesting. He is the smasher and the striker. The smasher and the striker. Look at verse 20. David came up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated him there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. The Lord has broken his enemies like a breaking flood. The Lord has come in a, like a roaring flood and smashed down their idols. He's washed the idols away. How many of you were here for the flood of, was it 97? I wasn't here at that time, but there was a big flood. I was here for the flood of 2013 that kind of 
it didn't really flood. It just made it just messed up our water supply. So we, we had to go to the porta potties across the town for for a week, and they had to close down school. But if you've ever seen a flood or pictures of a flood, I mean, it comes and sweeps everything away, leaves nothing behind. And this is the image that. David paints of God. God is the one that breaks through like a flood and, and kind of smashes. And what does God carry away? God, in a sense, is, he's, he's washing through the army of the Philistines and washing them away and washing their idols away. God is coming like a flood and smashing their idols. And then in verse 24, you see the second description of God. Verse 24, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The Lord has gone before to strike down. So these are like powerful warrior images of God. He's the smasher and the striker. He's come like a powerful flood. He, he struck down the Philistines. And notice who's the one that wins the battle. Does David say, I struck him down? No, God is the one that gave us the, gave us the victory. These are descriptions of God. And so you think about Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. So everything in this chapter points to God's faithfulness to his people into his promises. The first section we looked at, God is faithful to David over many years of trials before he's finally king. The second section, God is faithful all the way back to Abraham, even though it took 800 years to get Jerusalem. Third section, at the immediate time, God is faithful to smash the Philistines, the enemy, right there. He's the warrior God who fights the battle. So, let's make this very practical. Because you can read the story and say, ah, oh, it's a cool story. So if God was faithful to David, if God was faithful to Abraham, and if God was the mighty warrior who smashed down the enemy, this is the same God we worship. It's the same God that made the promise to David, the same God that made the promise to Abraham. This is your God. Now, he has made some powerful promises to you. Now, there are specific promises that God made to Abraham that he didn't make to you. Did you go conquer the Jebusites? Did you climb up a water shaft and go attack the Jebusites? No. But there were some promises that were made to both David and Abraham that, are, that we're the beneficiaries of. Okay, so we need to be very careful. There are some specific promises in redemptive history that only apply to Abraham, that only apply to David, that only apply to those Old Testament saints. But yet, when you come to the New Testament, Paul and some of the writers of the New Testament flesh it out and say, the promises that were made to Abraham are our promises. The promises that were made to David are our promises. So, in the New Testament, we see that God made promises to both Abraham and David that have direct application to us and they all center on Jesus. So, what promise did God make to us through Abraham? God made a promise to Abraham that they would have the land. 
the Jebusites would be taken. But you didn't cross the river Jordan and go take the Jebusites, and you weren't part of David's army. So, so what promise does, does Abraham have to you? Well, go back to, let's go back to Genesis 15. It's on your screen. One of my favorite passages of, Gen- of Genesis here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Okay, so what did God earlier promise to Abraham? You're going to have a child. How old is Abraham? He's old. How old is his wife? Old. Like 90 years old. And what does he say? How's this promise going to come true? I don't have any children. There's a slave guy, there's a servant in my house named Eleazar, but he's not an heir. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said to him, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Look up at the night sky, Abraham, and count the stars. Now astronomers tell us on a good clear night with no pollution, you can possibly see 6,000 stars with the naked eye. Astronomers also estimate there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way alone. Outside of that, there are millions upon millions of other galaxies. Now the point is not for Abraham to start going number one, number two, number three, until he gets like, that's not the point. The point's an object lesson. What's the point when Abraham looks up at the stars? There's a lot of stars up there. It's filling the whole night sky. The point is that God says, listen, Abraham, just like there's all these stars that you can't, you can't number, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Okay, now let's stop and think about it. At this point in Abraham's life, does he even have a child? Doesn't have one son. Who are the countless stars? Now you may say, well, that's just the Jewish people. Yes, and more. The countless stars that Abraham sees are none other than all the people of God from all ages that will be in heaven because they have faith in Christ. What does Revelation 7, 8-10 through 10 tell us? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, the, the offspring of Abraham are not just the Jewish people, but Paul tells us that the offspring of Abraham are all those who have faith in Christ. 
We sang a song when we were kids. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, sit down. It's like this really crazy song, but the whole point is, is that he's your daddy. Okay, Abraham, if you have faith in Christ. Now, verse 6 in that Genesis passage is probably one of the most important words described of Abraham in the entire Old Testament because Paul quotes it and James quotes it, especially in the book of Romans. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. God believed. I mean, Abraham believed God. And the word believed is a strong word in the Hebrew that means to trust wholeheartedly, to place strong confidence in. Abraham took God at his word that you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Later on, he said, as the sands on the seashore. And what does it say about Abraham? I believe. I believe you, God. I can't see it, but I trust you and your promises. And it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, what you need to understand here is this is the moment that Abraham received the promise as a free gift of salvation. It was trust in the promises of God, no questions asked. Listen to how Paul describes it in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Who are the children of Abraham? Who are your descendants, Abraham? Well, let's let Paul tell us. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So who are Abraham's children? Those who've placed their faith in Christ. And what's the promise to us? If you place your faith in Christ, the same thing happens to you that happened to Abraham. What did God say when Abraham placed his faith? It was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so here's the point for us. Here's the promise for us. Here's where it comes down to the nitty-gritty for us. We would be declared not guilty through faith alone in Christ. In other words, this is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When you believe in Jesus the way that Abraham believed the Lord, it is counted to us as righteousness. In other words, we are counted righteous in God's sight. We are declared legally to be righteous, to be not guilty. So this is one of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible. We talk about this a lot at Emmanuel. Over the 17 years I've been here, I've tried to emphasize this repeatedly. Justification by faith alone. And the best place to go for this is in Romans chapter 4 because Paul is going to draw us back to Abraham. So Romans 4, 1-5. through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is quoting Genesis 15. If Abraham could somehow earn his salvation by doing good works, he would have room to boast. 
I did something to earn God's graces. But what does Paul say? He's not going to boast before God because you can't earn your salvation. What did Abraham do? He believed God. Now, Paul is going to make the application to us. Verse 4 and 5, one of the most important verses in Romans. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who works, his wage is a due. Now, how many of you would like to work a 40 or 50 hour week slaving at your job, putting in all this energy, dealing with all the issues that, it, that you deal with, and then you go to your employer after a long, hard week and you say, you know what, I'm feeling really generous. I know I've worked like a dog this week, but I really, I really don't need a paycheck. Would you not pay me this week or this month? Anybody ever done that before in their life? Don't pay me. I've worked, but don't pay. So Paul's basically saying, in the world of working and employing, it's expected that if you work, you get paid. You earn your paycheck. But this is not how the gospel of salvation works. It's counterintuitive to what we think. What do we think? What are we hardwired to think? I must do something to earn God's favor. Just like I work at my work and get a paycheck, I must have to do something for God to pay me or for me to be in God's good graces. And Paul blows that out of the water. And verse 5, he says, no. The one thing we can do to be accepted before God is to trust, to believe. God justifies or God declares not guilty or God accounts the righteousness of Christ to the ungodly. We are ungodly sinners who cannot produce any righteousness on our own and the only thing we can do is to place all of our trust in God who justifies us through Jesus. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. It is trust in the, the merits and works of Christ and His cross. And it's, it's all of grace. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So Abraham simply believed God, took God at his word, and was counted righteous. If you go back to Romans chapter 4, the word counted shows up, I think, seven times in that passage. Counted accounted, reckoned, imputed. Okay, this is justification by faith. The wording, it's a banking term. It means to credit or to impute. Debits, credits. Ledgers. Okay? So let me just read it, and then I can maybe explain it. I'll, I'll just read what I wrote, then I'll explain it. It means that those. It means that when we trust Christ for salvation by faith, all of our sin is credited or imputed to Jesus so that we're totally forgiven. Okay, so if your life is like a bank account, you have a negative gazillion balance because of your sin, and God the judge looks down upon your life as a bank account, and he sees this negative balance, and, and he has to say, you're in debt. You are negative. You are in the hole. So what has to happen for you to get out of the hole of your debt? Your debt has to be taken out of your account. Okay, so when you believe in Jesus, that sin debt is credited or transferred or reckoned out of your account, and Christ takes it. So what does that leave you at? 
Zero. <laughs> Is that good enough to be saved? No. You need a positive righteousness. Can you produce that positive righteousness? No. The righteousness of Christ, His perfect record, has to be credited, imputed, reckoned, debited, whatever word you want to use, into your account, your life. So that now when God the judge looks down upon your life, He sees the record of Christ. And based upon the record of Christ, God can make a legal declaration, not guilty. You've been counted as righteous. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to you. There's this great exchange that happens. Your sin goes out, Christ's righteousness comes in, you're declared legally not guilty on account of Christ alone. That's what justification by faith alone means. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, the transaction, our sin goes out, Christ's righteousness comes in, we are legally declared not guilty by God the Father. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of God. So one of the benefits of being justified is we have peace with God. We have all of our sins forgiven. It's an instantaneous, one-time, never-to-be-repeated declaration that God makes that puts us in a permanent position of always being at peace with God, being forgiven, being accepted. And then the, the mere image to Romans 5.1 is Romans 8.1 says it in, an, in a different way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the promise made to Abraham when he looked up at the stars is the same promise made to you, but it's the righteousness of Christ. So let me, let me give you some practical application here. Let me ask you a question. Does God love you more when you're obeying at full cylinders, having your quiet time every day, you're serving in a soup kitchen, and you're doing all these great things for God, does God love you more on those days? And then He loves you less on the days when you're kicking your dog and cussing at your spouse and speeding in traffic. And does God's love for you fluctuate based upon your behavior? No. God's love for you is permanent based upon Christ. Because Christ died in your place. You have the righteousness of Christ, and so your position never changes. So you don't have to be on the treadmill of trying to prove yourself to God because you're already accepted by God. You're credited with the righteousness of Christ. So that was the promise made to Abraham. All right, let's talk about David. David was made a promise to be king of Israel. That was not made to you. David was made a promise that he would get... You know, the Jebusites and God would be the smasher and the striker. That taking of the city of Jerusalem was not given to you. But what promises were given to David that are given to you? Okay, Paul, on his first missionary journey, preached a sermon in a synagogue of Antioch, Pisidia, and he tells us what God promised through David. So let's turn in the book of Acts. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to read a portion. We're not going to read all of this sermon. Or as it literally a word of exhortation. That's maybe what I'll start calling it on Sunday mornings. I'm not going to preach a sermon anymore. I'll preach a word of exhortation. That's really the word, a word of exhortation. Acts 13. I'm sorry, it's on the, it should be on your screen there or on your sheet. Acts 13. So let's pick up this along. So basically, um, 
it starts in verse 16 when Paul raised his hands and says, Men of Israel! And then he begins to preach the sermon and it goes all the way through the end of Acts chapter 13 and we see the response. But let's, let's, let's look at some of the content of Paul's sermon because he's going to talk about David and make the application to us and more specifically to Jesus. Okay? Before we start though, let me ask you a question. These are easy questions, so these aren't, these aren't hard questions. Was David the king of Israel? Yes. Was David the shepherd king of Israel? Yes. Was, did David die? Yes. Was David buried? Yes. Did David ever rise from the grave? As great of a king of Israel he was, David died and was put in a tomb. Okay. Who's the son of David? Jesus. Well, Solomon. Who's the ultimate son of David? Jesus. Is Jesus king of Israel? Yes. Is he king of the entire world? Did Jesus die? Was Jesus in a tomb? Did Jesus raise again? Yes. Okay. That's Paul's sermon, but let's read it. Okay? I'm just trying to make it easy for you. Verse 21. I've got to find it here. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So you find out that David is the king, a man after God's own heart, and who's David's offspring? Jesus. And notice what the last verse of verse 21 says, as he promised. He brought Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Promised to David. Okay, go down to verse 32. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers. Okay, who are the fathers that God made a promise to? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the people he's been talking to. Okay, remember this whole, let, let's just back up. The whole thing we're talking about now is God's faithful to his promises. He was faithful to his promise to David. He was faithful to his promise to Abraham. Abraham's promise is made applicable to us because we have the same faith that Abraham did that makes us righteous before God through Christ. Now, now he's talking about David. Okay. How has God been faithful to the promise he made to, his, to the fathers? Verse 33. This he has fulfilled to us, to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, but he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
So Paul in his psalm refers to the blessing, the promise that God made the fathers, and in particular David. And he quotes Psalm 2, he quotes Isaiah 55, he quotes Psalm 16.10. And so here's the point of Paul's sermon. is to show that the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus coming as the Messiah and rising again. David was a mere man who died and was buried and never came back to life. Jesus, on the other hand, the ultimate shepherd king, the ultimate king of kings, died, was buried, but he victoriously rose again. Nobody else can claim that. Jesus is the only one that rose from the grave. And so Paul addresses this later on in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. Have you ever thought about that? If Jesus never rose from the dead, we have a useless faith. Why are we even here? makes no sense. And not only that, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, Paul's preaching this sermon. He says God made promises to the fathers. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to Isaac, Jacob, David. And ultimately these promises came through in the person of Christ, the true offspring of David, the true offspring of Abraham. So Jesus was the true offspring of Abraham. Galatians tells us that. Paul says here Jesus is the true offspring of David. So the two men that we've been looking at that God made a promise to, Abraham and David, who is the ultimate promise that came through them Jesus and what did Jesus do he came he died on the cross he was buried he rose again he did not see corruption the way David did who died and was buried with his fathers but then Paul pivots and says okay I've given you his sermons basically I've given you a history of Israel and I've shown you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies because remember he's preaching in the synagogue the Jewish people would have known their Old Testament and so he's preaching to the Jews saying listen everything you believed about the Old Testament it culminates on Jesus and then he gets to the punchline of his sermon he gets to the application and basically what he does is he says I'm going to give you two glorious blessings or benefits or gifts that you can receive from the death burial and resurrection of Jesus because notice what he says there look at verse 39 this is where he kind of drives the sermon home let it be known therefore to you brothers let it be known. Here's the end of my sermon. I've preached about all these Old Testament fulfillments. They've come in Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection. I've given you the historical history of everything. Now I'm looking you in the eye and saying, let it be known. Here's what you can receive from Jesus. And here's the first thing He says. You can receive complete forgiveness of all your sins. Notice what He says there. Let it be known, this is in verse 38, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, who's this man? Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You can have your sins forgiven through Jesus and Jesus alone. Forgiveness of sins. Now, this would have made a lot of, this would have been kind of interesting in the synagogue because how do they think their sins were forgiven? Through the sacrificial system. They're going to Passover every year up to Jerusalem and slaughtering a lamb. 
And Paul's saying, listen, you don't need to go through all those ceremonies anymore. The forgiveness of sins comes through the promise that was made to Abraham, the promise that was made to David, the true offspring, Jesus, the one who died and rose again. He's the one that can give you complete forgiveness of all your sins. Now, think about the forgiveness of all your sins. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, this is from David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whom there is no spirit and no deceit. Your sins are forgiven. Blessed are you when your sins are forgiven through Jesus. And then, you know this one, Psalm, 102, or Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Isn't it interesting that he, he understood a globe back then? North and south. What happens if you go north? You can eventually go south. If you go east, you just keep going. You keep going. So basically the point is, is that Jesus totally, completely forgives all of your sin. And then Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In Him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom. Every single sin you've ever committed can be forgiven. Now, think about what you've done just today. I'm not going to try to list them out, but just think about it. Let's be generous and say you committed three sins today. Let's just be generous. I'm probably sure we probably committed more. So in a week, how many sins would you commit? Let's do our math. Three times seven is what? 21. So you'd commit 21 sins in a week. In a year, I'll give you the math in case some of you are getting your calculators out. I'll just save you the time. In a year, if you committed three sins a day, just be generous, three sins a day, in a year you would commit 1,092 sins. Let's say you live just to be 70, okay? The average lifespan is longer. Let's say you live to be 70. How many sins would you commit in a lifetime if you just committed three sins a day? 76,440, and that's just three a day. And the Bible defines sin as sins in thought, word, and deed. So it doesn't count your thoughts. Because we we, sometimes we don't count those, our thoughts. Those are sinful too. Can you even begin to pay back the enormous amount of sin that you've committed? Only through Jesus. Listen to Paul. Let it be known today, brothers, that through this man I preach the forgiveness of sins. One of the most important things I can do as your pastor every Sunday is to proclaim to you your sins are forgiven through Jesus. Why do we need to hear that every week? For reassurance? We keep sinning. Sometimes we can't forgive ourselves. We need to hear every week you are forgiven through Christ. Past, present, and future. So that's the blessing number one. Paul says, I proclaim to you forgiveness of sins, but he gives a second blessing, and guess what the second blessing is? It's the blessing he gave to Abraham we just saw. You can receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice what Paul says here. You don't get this in your ESV, but I'll tell you exactly the, the, the Greek translation. 
Verse 39, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word freed in the original language is justified. Do you have a footnote in your Bible that says justified? When you believe, you can be justified by faith. Not by keeping the law of Moses, not by works, but by faith. Not to him who works, but to him who trusts. God imputes righteousness to the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. Galatians 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that was promised to David. That was promised to Abraham. Paul goes into the synagogue and preaches it to these people. Okay, our passage in 2 Samuel had three sections, right? God made a promise to David. God made a promise to Abraham. What was the third point? God was the smasher and the striker. He, sm- he, he defeated the idols and the enemy of the Philistines. So let's think about one other thing in relation to God's promises. God was the smasher and the striker who was the mighty warrior that fought for Israel. Now, you weren't there in those balsam trees, hearing the Lord rustling and surprise attacking the Philistines in Jerusalem. So how can God be the smasher and the mighty warrior for you? Okay, That was a very specific thing that God did for David and the Israelites against the Philistines. God smashed the idols like a flood. God struck the enemy. That was a specific thing God did at a specific time for specific people. Okay, But God is still the smasher and the striker. So the question is, how is God the smasher and the striker for you? How did he act that way for you? Okay, Let's look at a passage of Scripture. It, God is the mighty warrior who strikes down and smashes our enemies. Okay, Look at what Jesus did on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 16. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him how is God the smasher and the striker in your life he disarmed Satan and gave us new life through the cross Jesus on the cross is the smasher and the striker what did he strike and smash on the cross He struck a death blow to Satan and sin and the powers of evil and disarmed them. Remember when God came through like a mighty flood? What did he get rid of? What did David get rid of? 
the idols. What does God get rid of in your life? Idols. And what does God replace your idols with? Himself. As the greatest treasure. So all the promises that came true for Abraham, all the promises that came true for David, all the promises that came true for the Israelites, those specific promises were specific for them, but ultimately they all come true for you in the person of Jesus. God is faithful to you through Jesus. He's your mighty warrior. He is your shepherd king. He is your promise keeper. Just like David smashed the idols of the Philistines, Jesus is the king who's the mighty warrior who smashes your idols so you can worship him alone. Jesus is the shepherd king who can declare you not guilty. Jesus is the shepherd king who has forgiven all your sins through the cross. Jesus is the shepherd king who has disarmed Satan and given you new life in him. The question comes for you, how do you respond? How did Israel respond to David at Hebron. They all bowed before the true King David, the true anointed shepherd king, and they pledged their allegiance to him. Will you bow before the true shepherd king, Jesus, and pledge your allegiance to him? Why? Why would you do that? Because he's faithful to his promises. He was faithful to David. He was faithful to Abraham. He, he will be faithful to you. Now, you may have to suffer trials and wait patiently to get there. David waited a long time. Israel waited 800 years. Think of what Jesus had to go through before he finally went to the cross and, and rose again. So it may take some time to wait for God's timing. But what's the one thing you can bank on? His unchanging faithfulness to you. Do you rest in his unfaithful, I mean his unchanging faithfulness to you? And whenever you doubt, is God really faithful? Is God really faithful? I'm waiting a long time here. Whenever you doubt that, what do you do? You look to the cross and say, that's how much God proved my, his love for me. He sent Jesus to die and rise again. That's how faithful he is to me. I may not see it. I may not feel it. It may not be the timing I want. But the one thing I can count on is God is faithful to you and to me through Jesus Christ. The same God that was faithful to Abraham, the same God that was faithful to David is the same God that we serve and he's faithful to us too. So that is what we have come to 
conclude tonight, are there questions or comments or observations or any types of things you would want clarification on? Anderson. <laughs> of which 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 book? We've been in Okay, out of Acts, back into Second Samuel chapter five. Okay. Yeah, I told you I wasn't gonna address that. No, not later tonight, like later on in another in another lesson. Yeah. Yeah, I told you that was like a snapshot of David's life. It wasn't like yeah. We're going to have to at some point address the concubines and the many wives and, yeah, I won't do that. I, that wasn't my point. My point tonight was not to get sidetracked on that, but to focus on God's faithfulness to David. Um, I figured that would get, get a sidetrack, so. Good to go? All right. No questions online? Okay. Well, let's pray and let's thank God. Let's maybe just have a little bit of silent prayer before I close and just maybe spend some time thanking God for his faithfulness to you. Um, sometimes we don't thank God enough. We kind of ask God for things and sometimes we even demand things from God. But when's the last time we just sat silently before him and just said, thank you, God, for your faithfulness? So let's just do that silently. You guys pray and then I'll close this. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are a God who's faithful. You were faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers as they are called. You were faithful to David, and you're faithful to us. Then it only comes through Jesus. So Jesus, thank you for being the smasher and the striker on the cross, disarming Satan, freeing us by your blood and giving us eternal life through your resurrection. When we doubt your presence or when we doubt your timing or when we go through times of, of stress or adversity, help us to always remember that you are faithful, that you're faithful to your promises and that gives us great assurance, that gives us great rest, that gives us great confidence to know that you're always faithful to us. And so thank you for that. We want to be grateful people so, Lord, praise you for your faithfulness, and it's in your name that we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.